I want to ask you a question this morning. Um, to think about people that you've met. Now, some of us have more trouble meeting people than other people. Uh, some people, it's very natural to meet people. But have you ever, have any of the people that you've ever encountered forged a relationship with you, or you forged a relationship with them, that changed you? You think back on that in your past, especially as a believer. Anybody that's had some kind of an impact or a real positive impact in your life that you just had a, originally just had a chance encounter with. And it changed your life. And I've had a few of those in my life. I remember as a fairly newlywed many, many years ago, uh, my late wife and I moved to a little town called Medical Lake outside of Spokane. She was going to teach school. I was going to be working in Spokane uh, for a landscape architect. And we were looking around for a place to live. And the only place that was available for rent was this huge four-bedroom, two-story house. So she and I and the dog moved in. And the very day that we were moving in, the landlord had hired a guy to paint the house. And so I'm trying to be friendly. And I walked out and I introduced myself to this guy. He was a few years older than me. And he's painting away there. And somehow the conversation got turned around to spiritual things. And it turned out that this guy had a tent. He was in the Air Force at the time. Um, Fairchild Air Force Base is right next door there. Uh, it turned out that he was in the Air Force, that he had been a member of a church in town, a Baptist church, which he recommended we visit. I, I said, I've never been in a church. I was really a brand new Christian. And uh, he happened to be pastoring that time a church in Idaho. And I was like a sponge, spiritually. I mean, I didn't know anything at that time. And he was one of these guys that answered my questions and encouraged me and mentored me spiritually for the next two years. Had a powerful impact on his life. We moved away. And we moved over here a few years later. And some years went by. And we decided to go back to that little town. Uh, my in-laws at the time lived outside of Spokane. And we thought, let's go back to that little church, the very first church I had ever been a member of and uh, see what's going on, see some of our old friends. So we went back to, excuse me, I'm losing myself here. We decided to go back and visit that church on a Sunday, the Little Baptist Church in Medical Lake. And um, let me back up a bit. I had read in a denominational newsletter, newspaper, a year or two in advance. I'd seen the picture of this new pastor coming to the Northwest. And he was going to be pastoring a church in Spokane. But what caught my attention in this newspaper, we'd had a picture of this guy next to a chalk easel. And I was just beginning a ministry in chalk artistry at that time. I was a youth minister, and I thought this would uh, help my youth ministry. But I saw that, and I thought, here's, an, here's another guy that's into chalk artistry. Just had a little picture of him moving to the northwest into the Spokane area. And I thought, boy, I'd like to meet that guy next time I'm in Spokane. Um, so... I kind of forgot about that, put it out of my mind. We went back one summer, went out to this little church to see our old friends, and they were without a pastor at the time, and so they were just having guest pastors come in. And I'm sitting in there, and all of a sudden this guy walks in with a chalk easel. And I thought, that's the guy. And I'd totally forgotten about it. And lo and behold, here he is, of all the churches in there, he's helping this other little church. And so... He preached and he drew this little drawing and all that. And after church, I went up to him and said, this is weird. I said, you know, I planned to contact you a year or so ago because I'm getting involved in the shock ministry, blah, blah. And I said, but I forgot all about it. And, here, and lo and behold, here you are today. And he said, that's interesting because I wasn't planning to do a drawing today. 
but as I was getting ready to come in the building, he said, I really felt a strong impression that I should pull my easel out. He said, I had nothing prepared. He said, I just kind of winged it this morning. And that began a relationship that he and I had until he passed away about five or six years ago. He had a powerful influence. He had been in, blown up in an accident. He had been nearly frozen in a blizzard. Uh, he said, he was a miracle. He had broken over 70 bones in his body through the course of his life. Uh, he was an evangelist, just an amazing guy. But I see both of those as divine encounters. But as much of an impression as those guys and others made on me, nothing made a greater impression than when I encountered Jesus Christ when I was 22 years old on a backpacking trip. Because when a person really encounters Jesus Christ, you're never going to be the same. It changes your life. And I want to talk about, I want to show you this morning a couple of close encounters with uh, Jesus. As we're going through the Gospel of John, I want you to turn to John chapter 1. These are close encounters of the divine kind. Okay? John chapter 1. Um, does anybody need a Bible? Did we... Did you... Where's Jay? Did you pass the Bibles out? or You did. Okay. We're good to go. Well, in the honor of the reading of God's words, let's stand. And I'm going to begin reading in verse 35. Now, last week, uh, when John preached... The passage before this is when John the Baptist said, Remember, behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And John had his own following. Okay, we're picking up, up now in verse 35. Let's read that. I'll read that together. Read along with me. So the next day, again, John was standing with two of his disciples. And he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour, which is four o'clock in the afternoon. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, So, you are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, or Cephas, which means Peter. Let's just stop and pray there. I'm sure, Heavenly Father, that many of us here have had such divine encounters with other people that have impacted our lives. But most importantly, Lord, I hope and I pray that each person here has had an encounter with Jesus Christ. I thank you, good Lord, that you, although you are the creator of the universe, that you spun the galaxies into existence, the furthest stars that we can't even, we can't even see with our telescopes. You are so vast, so powerful, and yet you're mindful of us. You care for us. As the psalmist says, what is man that you're mindful of him, the son of man that you even care for him? And yet you said you've made us just a little lower than the angels and crowned us with glory and honor. We are fearfully and wonderfully made. Heavenly Father, may we become everything that you have made us to become. May we never stop growing. May we never stop learning. Because your wisdom, your knowledge, and your truth are truly inexhaustible. 
Help us to continue to grow in grace, to pursue Jesus from the time we first encounter him and continually for the rest of the life until you take us into glory. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. And you can all be seated. Well, a couple of things here I want to share with you about close encounters of a divine kind with Jesus is the fact that uh, we see with these guys that encountering Jesus requires a seeking heart. These are the first disciples. These are the first two guys that started to follow Jesus. Now, the text doesn't say that John the Baptist expected his disciples to follow Jesus. Uh, In fact, some of them didn't. Some of them continued to remain with John. But these guys realized that John was pointing beyond himself. The day before, they'd heard John say, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's a pretty powerful statement. So again, this day he says, Behold the Lamb of God. And these guys realize this is where we belong. And so they acted, in a sense, true to John's teaching. John said, He must become greater, I must become less. And so these guys acted true to John's teaching and they transferred their allegiance from John to Jesus. So it says they followed Jesus Christ. The two disciples heard him say this and they followed Jesus. Now, Jesus turned and he saw them following him and he said, what are you seeking? Now, Jesus, by any outward indication, anybody else would look at this situation and say, well, they could have been legalists like Pharisees. They're going to follow him and start picking away at his teaching or criticizing him. Uh, They could have been political types. Uh, This is the guy that's going to deliver us from Rome. Uh, They're nationalists. Maybe they're just going to ask him directions. He turns around. He says, what are you seeking? Got the time, Lord? Well, they didn't have wristwatches then, so that wouldn't wouldn't have mattered. But he says, what are you seeking? Now, if you have an NIV, New International Version, I, I, I... take issue with that because um, the national version says, uh, what do you want? But that's really not the meaning of this word. What are you seeking? The word zeteo in the Greek, it means to seek something. It doesn't just mean, oh, what do you want? I mean, Jesus could have turned around if he'd been one of us and said, can I help you? But he specifically says, what are you seeking? That's important because Jesus, when Jesus used words, he meant what he said. He used words very importantly. What are you seeking? They tell. What, what, do you, what, what do you want? What are you looking for? In other words, Jesus was asking them, what are your motives? What are you guys looking for? Why are you following me? And Jesus does that. He looks at our motives because people seek Jesus for different reasons. People have different motives, Right? Today, people seek Jesus for curiosity. This is a pretty important historical figure. You know, I've already read about Buddha and Confucius and Mohammed and all these guys. I'm clicking them off. I better, I better look about Jesus. He's another historical figure. So they, they seek Jesus. Uh, their motive is just being curious. What's this guy like? A lot of people today seek Jesus as a means to an end. They turn on the television and they see these television evangelists promising them wealth, promising them healing, promising them prosperity, promising them all. Come to Jesus and whatever problem you have, Jesus will just take care of it. And so Jesus Christ becomes a means to an end. They're seeking him really for selfish reasons, aren't they? In fact, in um, 
John chapter 2, you want to flip over there. John chapter 2, Jesus was in Jerusalem. This is verse 23. At the Passover feast. And it says, many believed in his name. That sounds pretty good. They believed in his name. When they saw the signs he was doing. Why did they believe in his name? Because they saw the miracles. This guy, (laughs) he really puts on a show. But it says, but Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man for he himself knew what was in man. So here's all these followers following Jesus. In fact, it says they believed in his name. But Jesus wouldn't entrust himself to them. Why? Because he looked in their heart. He saw their motive. Their motive wasn't pure. They were looking for a show. They were looking for a display. Do another trick, right? Wrong motives. These guys didn't have a wrong motive. Now look at this. This is interesting. Jesus asked them, he says, what are you seeking? And they didn't answer his question directly, right? Jesus turned, saw them following, and said to them, what are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? That's not an answer that they're looking to Jesus. Jesus said, what are you seeking? They say, hey, where are you staying? What's, what's with that? They didn't answer him directly. These guys didn't have some, what? Interest in some kind of a passing exchange. They had some deeper questions. They didn't want to catch Jesus on the fly. And so they're asking Jesus, where are you staying? And he he answers, he tells them, and they follow him. And they spent the rest of the day with him. Why? Because they had some deep questions. They were disciples of John. They truly had seeking hearts. John, remember, preached a baptism of repentance and faith. These guys had apparently done that, but they wanted more than just a passing exchange. They had some deep questions and they said, where are you staying? Because they wanted to spend time with this guy. And Jesus said, come and see. They were true seekers. They wanted to be right with God. And they knew that Jesus apparently had the answer. Let me ask you this morning, why do you seek Jesus? If if Jesus were, were here and were turn around and say to you personally, Carl, what are you seeking? I'm picking on Carl here. No, individually. If Jesus were to say, what are you seeking? How would you respond? He's looking into your heart, right? Some people seek Jesus correctly because they want to be brought back to their creator. And in that sense, Jesus is a means to an end. He died on the cross for our sins. The Bible says when we put our faith and trust in him, then we are reconnected with our Creator. We're born again, we're saved, we're redeemed, whatever word you want to use. People seek Jesus today because they want to be brought in union with their Creator. But what if you already are that? Why do you seek Jesus? We seek Jesus because we want to get to know Him better. When I was, when, when my son was one year old, um, now some of you probably can remember when your kids are toddlers. Did this ever happen to you? I'm holding my son one day, and you know he's about probably a year, year and a half old, maybe two years old. And I had a beard at that time, and he's 
jabbering away at me. Little baby talk, you know, you kind of zone out. He's chatting away there and all that. And, and I, I turned and I was saying something to my wife or one of the kids like that. And he, he, this little kid reaches over, grabs my mustache and yanks my head around. And that hurt, you know. He wanted my face. He wanted me to look at him. You know, because he's just a jabbering kid. You kind of zone out. Okay. Um, he was seeking my face. Now, I, th I find that interesting because every time I read this psalm, Psalm 22, if you're interested, listen to what David says. Remember, David, King David was a man after God's heart. Doesn't mean he was perfect. Everything but perfect, right? He made some big mistakes, but David was a real good repenter. But David also sought the Lord's face. In Psalm 27, this is what David says, Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud. Be gracious to me and answer me. You have said, in other words, God has said to David somehow, Seek my face. My heart says to you, Your face, Lord, do I seek. Hide not your face from me. Turn not your servant away in anger. God says to David, seek my face. See, most of us seek his hands, what he can do for us. God says, no, that, that's okay. There's nothing wrong with seeking. What, what can I do for you, right? You know, again, I used to come home. My kids were little. A lot of times they met me at the door and, Daddy, did you bring me anything? Stopped in the store on the way, picked up some candy, some gums. You know, later on as they grew older, pick up donuts, whatever. And if I had something, give it to them. Thanks. And then go their jolly way, right? Now, can, fellas, can you imagine um, coming home if you've been gone all day long? Or maybe, maybe you gals, you've been gone all day long. You come home and there's your spouse. And the first thing your spouse says to you, what have you got for me? What'd you bring me? Could be a chai latte. I know what you're thinking. <laughs> and that's okay. But if you've been gone all day long, typically your spouse says, let's just sit down. Let's have a cup of coffee, your chai latte, whatever, okay? And just connect, right? That's... Differences, maturity, differences there is you're an adult. See, a childlike face, a childlike faith, continually when they pray, 90% of it's asking God, do this, do that. And there's nothing wrong with asking God for things. He tells us to do it in the Bible. But if that's all you do, or if that's what you mostly do, then you're missing the point of connecting with Him because God says, seek my face. Not my hands for what I do for you, but just just to know me, right? How do we do that? We spend time in His Word. I get to know my wife and continue on getting to know my wife. Talking to her, asking, finding things out. We seek God's face when we get into His Word and as we go through His Word we say, what do you like, God? Why did you do this? You see the difference there? Seek His face, not just His hands. Now, honest seekers are going to always find him. That's a promise. Listen to Deuteronomy 4.29. 
the Lord says, you will seek the Lord your God and you will find him if you search after him with all your heart and all your soul. First Chronicles 28.9, God speaking to, or actually David speaking, speaking to his son Solomon. He says, and you Solomon, my son, know the Lord your father and serve him with a whole heart and with a willing mind. For the Lord searches all hearts and understands every plan and thought. If you seek him, he will be found by you. And a fairly well-known passage, Jeremiah 29, 13, it says, when you seek me, God speaking, when you seek me with all your heart, I will be found by you, declares the Lord. What's the difference? When we seek him with all our heart, what does that mean? If you're looking to God without reservation, without motivation of self, well, I want to seek God, but I still got this thing in my life that I know is not quite right. Yeah, I know I haven't forgiven that person, but I still want to seek God. You know, I've got this certain thing that I want to hang on to, and I know it's wrong, but I still want to seek God. No, you seek God without reservation. He's the Lord of your life. No self in there. You seek Him with humility. You can't come to God with pride. Nobody struts into the kingdom of God. You seek him without reservation. You seek him with humility. So, Jesus said, what are you seeking? These guys answer him with a, kind of an indirect answer, where are you staying? Jesus said, come and see. And so they followed him. Jesus said, come and see. That's a divine invitation. He still offers that invitation today. You know, John 6.37, Jesus said, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. What are you seeking? What's your motive? Lord, I want to know you better. I want to know more. Come and see. That's a question Jesus still asked. What are you seeking? What's your motive? What are you looking for in life? What do people look for in life? Well, I remember hearing a, reading about a survey many years ago, and the, the number one thing people were searching for in life was happiness. There's nothing wrong with that. What does that mean? Well, um, comfort, ease, prosperity, health, right? Isn't that what we want? That's going to make us happy, right? All these things. Yeah. Um, well, let me get to that a little bit later. But ask yourself, what am I seeking from God? Comfort? Ease? He doesn't promise that. That's not one of his promises. In fact, a lot of these TV evangelists that promise all of these things. And sadly, people come to Jesus because that's their motive. That's what they want. And what happens? Comfort, peace, prosperity, no. A lot of times what happens is the promised tribulation, persecution, trouble, hardship, and so forth. And they say, wait a minute. I didn't sign on for this. And they fall away. Searching for all the wrong things. What am I seeking from God? What did Jesus come for? He came to save his people from sin. He didn't come to heal your poor self-image. He didn't come to 
lift you out of, out of poverty necessarily. Primarily, Jesus came to save us from our sin. God's goal, this sounds kind of harsh, is not your happiness. God's goal is your holiness. God's goal is to produce in you the character of Jesus Christ, which is the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. Comfort is not in that list. Happiness is not in that list. But those are good things, aren't they? Love, joy, peace, patience. But folks, true love, agape love, only happens when we are put in situations where we have to exercise kindness to other people leaning on the grace of the Lord. Peace, patience, joy. Those things truly, those things if you truly love, joy, peace, patience are forged in the furnace of affliction. You see? Be careful what you ask for. <laughs> God's goal is your holiness. I don't think he minds you being happy either. But that's not the main point. But the second point I want to make here is when we encounter Jesus, we want, to, uh, we want others to meet him as well. Look at this in verse 40. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, we have found the Messiah, which means Christ. This is the long expected Messiah. This is what the prophets of old have been declaring and predicting for centuries. And he's finally here. Can you imagine coming to your brother and saying something like that? I mean, that's, that's pretty big. We found him. He's here. And so it says he found his own brother and said, we found the Messiah, so he brought him to Jesus. Andrew's kind of an interesting character. He had a humble heart. You know, he really played second fiddle to his brother, didn't he? You don't hear that much about Andrew. You hear a lot about Peter. Now, Andrew had to be a humble guy. He's willing to stand in his brother's shadow. But one thing that Andrew did, and he did well, was that he brought people to meet Jesus. In fact, every time you hear Andrew mentioned in Scripture, he's bringing someone to Jesus. Here he brings his brother Peter. A little later, he's going to uh, bring to Jesus a, a, a boy with um, a couple fish and a couple loaves of bread. Remember, Andrew was the one that brought him to Jesus, and Jesus multiplied them. Uh, a little while later, he's going to bring a couple of Greeks, a couple of Greek men that say we would see Jesus, and Andrew brings them along. So Andrew had a missionary heart as well as a humble heart. Now the other guy, the other disciple, uh, scholars believe, was John, the beloved disciple, probably the writer of this gospel. So now you've got Andrew and you've got John. These are the two disciples. Why, why do we think it was John? Well, this person, whoever uh, was writing this, was very familiar with this thing. If you look back in verse uh, um, 29, and the next day he saw Jesus coming toward him. Verse 35, the next day, again, John was standing with the two disciples. Verse 43, the next day Jesus decided to go to Galilee. This is a person that's well acquainted with the details of what's happening here probably the writer of the gospel. In any case, Andrew brings his brother to Jesus. What's the current, current analogy of that? Would be you, parents, bringing your children to Christ? All three of our kids were brought to the Lord uh, 
by my late wife and I. She led both of our daughters to the Lord. I remember the evening when my 11-year-old son came out to the kitchen after he'd gone to bed and wanted me to pray for him because he wanted to receive Jesus Christ. And we led all three of our children to the Lord. That's something that parents, the best thing that parents can pass on to their children is that kind of a spiritual heritage. Sharing your testimony. Do you know something you have that nobody else has as a testimony? I mean, if you've come to faith in Jesus Christ, you have a testimony, but nobody has a testimony like yours. That's one thing people can't argue with because it happened to you. And you can bring, you can introduce people to Jesus. This is what happened to me, right? 75% of adult, and I would say teenage converts, come to Christ through the witness of a friend, statistically. Not by some evangelist, not at some crusade, not reading the Bible. I mean, all those things happen, but I'm saying 75% come through the witness and the testimony of somebody they already know. And so here's Philip. First thing he does, says so, goes to his brother. He's so excited, wants to tell Peter, wants to introduce him to Jesus Christ. And I don't know about you, but I just imagine Peter, if you know Peter, I mean, Peter is kind of a, oh, he's impulsive, argumentative sometimes. Do you think Peter just bought into that right away? I'm guessing Peter said, yeah, right. And I'm sure there's a little dialogue going on, and of course I don't know that, I'm speculating here. But Andrew finally convinced his brother, just, just come and see. Just check it out, Peter. Okay? And that's really all we need to do to people is just come and see. When I was in college, and um, I was in a fraternity house, which is not a real bastion of spiritual... There were about four or five guys in that fraternity house that were genuine Christians. A lot of guys, I mean, a lot of the guys went to church on Sunday, but, but their lives were no different than my life. And, but there were four or five guys there that were the real McCoy, and we kind of made life miserable for them. But um, I remember talking to them and arguing with them, okay? Now, at the time, I mean, I didn't know much. I, I, I didn't own one of these um, Holly Bibbles. And as I was arguing with these guys, and they'd say, you, you've never even read the Bible. You know? You're bringing up all these questions. A lot of them are answered in the Bible. They say, you never read the Bible. And I kept hearing that. And what these guys were telling me is, check it out. Just read the Bible. And so I decided to check it out and make a long story short. Thinking that I was going to prove myself right, it backfired on me. And um, I gave my life to Jesus Christ. Just tell people to check it out and let the Holy Spirit do the work. So, when we encounter Jesus Christ, we encounter him with a seeking heart. And when we encounter Jesus Christ, we should want to share it with others. And the last thing here, look at verse 42. When you and I encounter Jesus Christ, something's going to change. So, Andrew, it says, he brought him, Peter, to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, So, you are Simon, the son of John. You should be called Cephas, or Kephas, which means Peter. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him. Uh, here again, key word. This is not the word that just means 
I guess you'd say more of a casual look. Oh, you're Peter? Now, this, is a, this word is interesting. It's a combination of two words. One word in the Greek means to, um, to look at. It's the word blepo. But they put this little prefix in front of it, M, or, which also means in. So, so literally, this means to look in, to look into. You see the difference there? It really has to, it emphasizes the, the thought, what's going on in the one that, that's seeing here. Have you ever had anybody look at you and it's like, they're looking right into you? That's the word here. See, Jesus looks into Peter. He knows Peter. He's the Lord. <laughs> he knows what's in a man. This is a penetrating gaze that goes beyond the superficial, okay? By the way, I feel sorry for Peter in one way because this happened to Peter several times. The same word. Let, let me read one of these to you. Um, in Mark chapter 14, verse 67, Jesus has been arrested, right? He's, he's been put on trial and all that stuff. And meanwhile, Peter's waiting outside. This is the Peter that said, Lord, I will never abandon you. I will never leave you. And Jesus said, yeah, right. Before the rooster crows three times, you're going to deny me. Oh, no, not me, Lord, right? Okay, so I'm just setting the stage for you here. So Jesus is with, you know, the Sanhedrin. He's been arrested. Mark chapter 14, verse 66. And as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came. And seeing Peter, really seeing Peter, right? Warming himself, she looked at him, that's the word right there, and said, you also were with the Nazarene Jesus. But he denied it, saying, I, I neither know nor understand what you mean. So he denied it. This gal looked right at him and said, you're the man. Well, that was bad enough when he had to deny that. But here's, here's the clincher, folks. Same scenario, same time, but now I'm over in the book of Luke, chapter 22. <clears throat> it says, after an interval of about an hour still, insist, uh, Peter insisted, saying, certainly, or they said, certainly this man, meaning Peter, was with him, for he too is a Galilean. But Peter said, man, I do not know what you're talking about. And immediately, while he was still speaking, guess what? The rooster crowed. Now listen to this, next verse. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. Did you catch that? While Peter's in the courtyard denying Jesus, he is in, Jesus is, he still sees Jesus. Jesus is inside, but it must be the doors open, so there's nothing between Jesus and Peter. Peter denies Jesus the third time, the rooster crows, and Jesus turns and looks. Same word, at Peter. <laughs> wow. Doesn't say anything. Just looked at him. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he'd said to him, before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went on, wept bitterly. I can't imagine that penetrating look at that moment. Wow. That's what Jesus does. He looks into us. He sees us. And Jesus says to Peter, he says, your name is Simon, son of John. Simon was a very common name. But you will be called Kephas, Cephas, which means Peter. Kephas or Cephas is an Aramaic word that means rock. Okay? And the Greek word for rock is Petros, Peter. Jesus said, you're Simon, I know that. But you're going to be Peter. You're going to be a rock. 
So Jesus is not so much prophesying here as he's looking into Peter and he's saying, this is who you are now, but this is what you're going to be someday after I get through with you. Peter, you are an impulsive, uh, vacillating, brash, undependable kind of a guy, wishy-washy, loudmouth, but someday you're going to be a rock, Peter. Jesus looked into Peter, saw who and what he was. He said, but this is who you're going to be when you follow me. And you know something? From this point on, Jesus sent Peter a subtle message because after this, if there was any time when Peter was acting like his old self, Jesus referred to him as Simon. But there's a few times when Jesus actually called him Peter, when he was acting in a way that Jesus wanted him to be. Who do men say that I am? Peter says, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. Blessed are you. He says, Simon Barjona. You know, but then he called, but on this rock, Petrus, Petra, I'm going to build my kingdom. So, Jesus still changes lives. 2 Corinthians 5.17, if any man is in Christ, he's what? He's a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. Jesus not only sees your actualities, he sees your potential if you follow him. One time uh, somebody asked Michelangelo what he was doing. He was chipping away at some large shapeless chunk of marble. And the great master responded. He said, I am releasing the angel imprisoned in this marble. Isn't that cool? Everybody else saw this hunk of rock. Michelangelo saw the angel encased in that, and he was going to release that angel. John Newton wrote Amazing Grace. Self-proclaimed horrible sinner, right? John Newton, former slave trader, captain of two or three ships that brought slaves from Africa to America. He mentioned that the ship held 600 slaves one of the ships. They were down in the hold. There's diagrams of how they used to do this. It's pretty horrible. They would lay them side by side, but one person's head, one person's feet, and just rows, chained, laying on the floor. They couldn't get up and move around. Had to lay in their own filth. Just enough room between the rows for people to walk and give them whatever food and water they needed. Many of them died on the way. It was just a horrible thing. John Newton's father was a slave trader as well. He became a slave trader. He was such a vile person uh, that his crew despised him because he was worse than most of them. One time he found uh, some kegs of uh, rum or something and broke them open and the whole crew became drunk. The captain of the ship was so incensed that he had him brought out and whipped. He fell overboard. And according to one account, the captain literally threw a harpoon at him. Didn't just toss him a rope, threw a harpoon, speared him in the side. To which he said that the rest of his life he carried a large scar. He was so despised. And yet John Newton came to the Lord eventually. He had had a godly mother that had died many years before. John Newton said, I'm not what I should be, I'm not what I want to be, and I'm not what I will be. But by the grace of God, I'm not what I used to be. Can you say that about yourself? What are you seeking? Be careful what you ask for. Luke chapter 14. 
Jesus said, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Folks, there's only one reason you carried a cross back in that day. And that was if you're on your way to your death. Jesus is saying, are you willing to die to self? Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he's laid the foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000. Jesus is saying, count the cost. If you really want to follow me, and your motive is comfort, healing, happiness, ease, prosperity, those are not necessarily in and of themselves bad things. Count the cost. Following Jesus is not easy. G.K. Chesterton was a Catholic um, philosopher and great Christian. And he said, Christianity has not been tried in the balances and found wanting. Christianity has been tried in the balances, found difficult and rejected. Following Jesus is not easy. Be careful what you ask for. Are you seeking Jesus so that he'll change your circumstances? Or are you seeking Jesus so that he'll change you? My experience in marriage counseling is most people that come in with real serious problems aren't coming to be changed. They're coming for relief. They want relief. Husband says, you know, he doesn't say this hourly. I want, she needs to change. I want relief. No. Are you coming to Jesus to change your circumstances? Are you coming to Jesus to change you? You can't just add Jesus onto your life. It doesn't work that way. He knows everything about us better than you know yourself. And he not only sees who you are now, but he sees what you need to be and the method to get you to that point. D.L. Moody said, the world is yet to see what God will do with a man who's fully consecrated to him. Have you had a divine encounter with Jesus? If you have, God took the initiative. John 6:44. Jesus said, all who the Father gives me will come to me. No one comes to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Is God drawing you this morning? Then you need to have an encounter with Jesus Christ. And Jesus is ready to turn and to meet you. And if you're at that point in your life this morning, there's going to be some folks over here that are going to love to pray with you and introduce you to Jesus so that you can have an encounter with him. But let me talk to you people also that already have encountered Jesus. What are you seeking this morning? Are you just seeking his hands? Let me encourage you to seek his face to get to know him better. Let's pray. Thank you that you are a personal Lord. Thank you loved us enough to send your only son to die for us. May we behold him. May we encounter Jesus, Lord, continually getting to know you better in Christ. 
And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.